Welcome to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy. We're here on the internet, www.laborlawradio.com. If you have any questions or comments, uh, there's an email link there. You can uh, send it in. Or you can give us a call, 888-678-7229. For those of you who have questions, generally we don't take questions on the air because of the difficulty in censoring different information that uh, is confidential. So the easiest way to do is email your questions in. Then I can sort of uh, redact the information and sort of phrase it in more of a general general sense because we can't uh, broadcast a lot of the stuff on uh, the Internet or on the radio that we get questions in. So anyway, Internet's the best way. Uh, Today's subjects are a continuation from the previous broadcast at a bit of a hiatus there because of uh, my workload, but we're picking back up. Last time we had discussed about uh, arbitration as one type of uh, dispute resolution uh, option that uh, employers generally tend to favor, but uh, frequently you can use it to your advantage as an employee. Uh, The next two that we're going to talk about uh, today are class actions and private attorney general actions. So private attorney general actions we'll get to in the second half of the hour. Very new law was enacted in 2004, Private Attorney General Act of 2004. It's very different from other laws that are commonly referred to as private attorney general action. It's It's a very novel way of resolving labor disputes and enforcing the California Labor Code. And it's still an open issue. We haven't seen a lot of cases on it. Uh, That's just the way the legal system works. But we have had a couple interesting rulings and some some positive results have been achieved using the the private attorney general. Sometimes we'll refer to it as PAGA, P-A-G-A, Private Attorney General Act. Um, But we'll get to that in the second half of the hour. For the first half, I want to talk about class actions. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard of class actions. You may have even been in a class action uh, yourself as a, uh, you know, not as a named plaintiff. You know, you get something in the mail saying AT&T overcharged you by 28 cents last year and please fill in this piece of paper uh, and assign this piece of paper and you will receive a coupon for, you know, 28 cents worth of AT&T minutes or something like that. So a lot of you have experience with class actions. In general, uh, class actions in the employment sphere are very, very different from those. Uh, A lot of consumer class actions, you know, the AT&T overbilling you, your bank not uh, telling you you're getting your ATM charges and you get a $2 check from the bank. A lot of those are very small things, you know, a couple dollars to a you know, maybe a million employees, so it adds up to a lot of money, but doesn't really mean anything to the individual litigants. Uh, generally, the attorneys in that case, both the plaintiff and the defendant's attorneys, make a ton of money, and the individual litigants, you know, get a coupon for a free rental at Blockbuster, which was, I think, one of the, uh, in one of the Blockbuster cases, that's what they gave them, was a, was a, a free video rental at Blockbuster. Doesn't mean much to most people. Inside the employment law context, frequently it does. Uh, there was a, there's a recently a, an article in Business Week entitled Wage Wars. It sort of highlights one of the more prominent practitioners of wage and hour law uh, in, here in California. No, not myself. I know you all think that I'm the most prominent wage and hour practitioner in California. But no, um, as prominent as I am, there's a couple other uh, big class action firms and the one that they were featuring was Mark Thierman, a very sharp attorney, and he's litigated a lot of class actions for unpaid overtime and done very well uh, for the uh, the parties in, in those cases. Uh, you'll see as we discuss class actions that 
a big criticism I have as well as you know non-attorneys are that generally the attorneys make a lot of money and the employees get the shaft. Uh, but in a lot of wage and hours, and uh, especially in some of them that were done by uh, Mr. Thierman, the employees received a very large average settlement. I think in one of his, uh, it was either a stockbroker case or a, a loan officer case, the average amount recovered by the plaintiffs was $30,000 per person. Now, that's a little bit more than free rental at Blockbuster and certainly something that that did help those uh, litigants out. But also point out the problems with that type of class action, even when you get $30,000, and and I think uh, Mark Thurman did a great job for the the plaintiffs in that case. However, those plaintiffs were still got the shaft. And we'll talk about why, but essentially, even though $30,000 is a good amount for a wage claim, had they prosecuted it individually on their own, they probably would have gotten a lot more. And uh, we'll sort of see why that is and, and how it to goes through the process of a class action and what you can do about it to make sure that you're one of the people that benefits from the class action or that benefits from what your rights are as an employee to to get this money rather than just be one of the people who fills out the paperwork, gets his check, uh, even if it's $30,000 and you think that's a lot of money, chances are had, uh, had you opted out, had you got individual representation and pursued that lawsuit, you could have got a lot more. So what I want to do is sort of go over the procedures for a class action, show what the benefits are, what the downsides are, and just what the economic realities are in uh, in litigation. So first of all, what is a class action? A class action is just a type of lawsuit in which one or more plaintiffs, known as the named plaintiffs because their names are used in the litigation, sue on behalf of a bunch of other unnamed plaintiffs that suffer from similar injuries and are entitled to a similar relief from the court. So let's say in an unpaid overtime case, uh, let's say you're a loan officer working for a large uh, mortgage company and there's a thousand of you that had worked throughout the state of California and one um, comes forward and says, I want to sue for my unpaid overtime, but not only on behalf of myself, but on behalf of all the other 999 employees that worked here in California as loan officers for the past four years. So in that case, the one named plaintiff, his is going to, or her name is going to be the only one that goes on the lawsuit. Uh, Then she's going to sue on behalf of all other similarly situated. And then essentially, if uh, they ultimately prevail in the lawsuit, uh, the thousand people would receive their uh, their unpaid overtime. Now, realistically, very, very, very few class actions go all the way through to trial. In fact, for wage and hour cases that is unpaid overtime, meal breaks, things like that, there's only been two or three in California in the last uh, you know 10 or 20 years. So it's not something you see very frequently. Usually they settle well before that, and usually they point the point at which they settle is once the class is certified. And that's part of the process that we're going to talk about here. So when we get one of these things in the mail and you sort of you sort of know what's going on with it and you'll be able to determine whether you need to opt in, opt out, or or do something with that. So basically the plaintiff has filed this lawsuit and said, I want to sue on behalf of myself and the other thousand people that work as loan officers or, you know, whatever the uh, occupation is. I'll just use loan officers as an example throughout this uh, broadcast today. So this one person in the, you know, files on behalf of a thousand loan officers, 
then you know they, they file it with the court and it goes into uh, discovery. Discovery is where you request documents and information from the uh, defendants and the defendants can ask them of you. And what you're trying to prove there, what the plaintiff needs to show is that is a couple things. They need to show that this group of a thousand loan officers has substantially similar job duties and substantially similarly legal issues so that the court can properly address this as a group. It doesn't make any sense to say, I worked as a janitor, but I want to sue on behalf of everybody that worked for, for General Motors. I want to sue on behalf of the assembly line workers. I want to sue on behalf of the, uh, the accountants, the, the purchasing agents, the, the, the truck drivers, the shippers. All of those guys didn't get it paid overtime, and I want to sue on behalf of them. That may all be true, but you cannot adequately represent them, and even if you could, all of them are different issues. Maybe accountants are exempt from overtime. Maybe the truck drivers have some different exemption from overtime. Maybe the assembly line workers didn't have their hours tracked properly. Or There's going to be something different for each one of those occupations. So you have to show that there was some common scheme to deny overtime and that it applied to all these people. Now, in the case of the 1,000 loan officers, that's pretty straightforward because they all worked as loan officers. They were all paid on some type of commission basis, and their job duties were all substantially similar, so we can determine that they were non-exempt, that is, entitled to overtime. Now, there may be issues in that if they worked in different satellite offices, maybe their job duties were different from office to office. That's what the defendant is going to argue. The plaintiff needs to show that no those 1,000 loan officers all had substantially similar job duties. And the way they do that is they interview uh, a number of these loan officers and get witness statements from them that say that tell the court my job duties were X, Y, Z. The court looks at them, and if, if, let's say, 10 or 20 of these different loan officers from various different branch offices in California all say that their job duties were X, Y, Z, and you know, X, Y, Z in each case is substantially similar, then the court is going to say, yes, these 1,000 loan officers have similar job duties, they have similar work uh, patterns, and we can treat them as, as a group. So that's the main thing that you, that you need to, to show. There's a couple others that you need to show, the more legal technicalities. Uh, the main thing is, is that the, the named plaintiff, the person who brought the lawsuit, can adequately represent them. Uh, for instance, if they had already received a settlement or they had just you know, recently been hired and the company had changed policies after that, uh, that was hired. Uh, you know, so there are some instances where the, the named plaintiff can't adequately represent them. Um, for instance, let's say the, the named plaintiff was a loan processor. Well, obviously the loan processor can't represent all the loan officers. You need to be working as a member of the larger group that, uh, that you're representing, and they have to have similar job duties to what you have. So once you prove that, you bring this motion for class certification. And that's really the big thing for class actions is this motion for class certification. Because if you win it, especially in wage and hour cases, uh, essentially it's telling the defendant that they need to pay a lot of money to settle this case and do it very, very quickly. Uh, unless there's some open issues that the defendant wants to take to trial um, and you know that they did in Walmart, Walmart, uh, had the class certified, took it to trial, and then just got slammed for $173 million or something like that that the, that the jury found. So defendants don't want to let a jury get a wage an hour case that goes to trial because they can just be devastated by it. So essentially the main thing is, is proving up this, uh, this class certification. Now for that the attorney does a lot of work. You have to get all these witness statements and, and put all this stuff together. Uh, but essentially, if you win it at that point, 
um, you can get a, a pretty good settlement out of the uh, out of the case. But obviously, it didn't go all the way through to trial. So the amount of money that each of the plaintiffs is going to get is not nearly as much as they would if they did take it all the way to trial. For instance, in the Walmart case, they did very well because it did go all the way to, to a jury verdict, and the people got a, a good amount of money that was, was awarded. That was later appealed, and we'll see what happens with that case. But in the majority of the cases, the defendant after class certification wants to settle the case. And we'll get into sort of why that may be a good thing or why it may may not be a good thing because essentially at that point the defendant knows they're going to have to pay a good amount of money and they're just trying to minimize the amount that they have to pay. Now the plaintiff's attorney at that point pretty much knows that he's won and the reality is is that the plaintiff's attorneys largely drive class actions and that's where a lot of the class actions have gotten negative uh, the public has generated a negative opinion about them. So I'm here, I'm a plaintiff's attorney, and I'm here to sort of counteract that negative representation that, that plaintiff's attorneys have received because it's really be caused by a small number of lawsuits that were highly publicized and ultimately led to the Class Action Reform Act being passed, or Class Action Fair Fairness Act. So you know, there there are valid reasons for why the attorneys would want to settle it and why they, they don't all the way, always want to go all the way through to trial. But you do need to understand that the plaintiff's attorney is driving it. And if you're a member of one of these class actions and you receive a notice saying, you know, the attorney wants to settle it, you need to understand that that attorney does not represent you. He represents the named plaintiff. And primarily, he's interested in his uh, payoff that he's going to get that could be quite substantial. I was just reviewing the uh, FedEx class action settlement for uh, overtime and meal breaks for their truck drivers. Uh, attorney did a great job. He received $33 million for as part of the settlement. Uh, but his attorney's fees that he ultimately petitioned and was paid for were approximately $10 million out of that. That is a very substantial payout for an attorney. Um, largely representative of what, you know, an average percentage is. There's nothing wrong with it, uh, and in that case, I think it was fair. But you do need to understand that the attorney has a strong interest in resolving that lawsuit as quickly as possible so he can essentially get his, you know, 20, 30 percent of, uh, of the pot that's going to be paid out and not have to do all the work as if it went all the way through to trial. So when you get one of these notices, you need to look at it and say, forget what the attorney's getting, forget what the named plaintiff is getting. Is this settlement good for me personally? Because the defendant kind of knows they already owe you money. So it's not really a question of are you exempt, are you not exempt, how much are you going to have to prove. Obviously, you still have to go through all of that if you pursue it on your own, but the defendant sort of knows that you're entitled to some of this money anyway. So if you have good records of your hours worked or you know meal breaks that you didn't take or something like that, simply add them up, and if the amount that, uh, that you come up with is significantly different from what's on that uh, notice that they got, then you should contact a different attorney and ask if they'll represent you individually to, uh, pursue, your, uh, to pursue your case that way. Because it's not uh, simply signing off on these things is not always a good idea, especially given where the lawsuit is. Where we, we do a number of these we, cases where somebody gets a class action notice. We have one against a, a, a mortgage company, and the person would get a couple thousand dollars. 
and his overtime claim is is in the is in the tens. You know, it's it's close to a hundred thousand dollars in in unpaid overtime. So no real incentive to take a two thousand, three thousand dollar settlement, whatever was offered as part of the class action settlement, when you have uh, a solid claim like that, that that you can pursue. And you need to understand that the economics of class actions, especially for wage and hour things almost always indicate that you need to take a close look at what that settlement is to make sure it works for you. As I said, the uh, lead attorney in that has a large incentive to settle the thing quickly. Uh, he's going to get a substantial amount of money, and the question is, is, is that good for you? Now, I want to take a look at whether that's good for the legal system. Does it make a lot of sense, let's say in this uh, FedEx case, for $33 million to be paid to the employees and of that, $10 million is taken out for the attorneys. Is that a good thing? On its face, you say, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you pay an attorney $10 million to, to prosecute a lawsuit like this? It doesn't make sense. That's a windfall uh, for the attorneys. Well, yes, in that case, the attorney is getting more than his standard hourly rate, but you can't look at it exclusively like that. I, I don't have the numbers in, in front of me, but in general, plaintiffs' attorneys like me, when we take on cases like this, they are on a contingency basis. That is, if we don't recover money for our clients, we don't get paid. Not only do we not get paid, but litigation is extremely expensive. Even a small wage and hour lawsuit uh, can rack up five to $10,000 in direct costs that I have to pay right out of my pocket. I have to pay the filing fee to the court, I have to pay the process server, I have to pay the, uh, the court reporter to take the transcript, I have to pay for copying fees if we need to, to you know, send witness fees or things like that. I have to pay for all of that. And depositions generally run about you know, $800 to $1,000 a day. Um, it gets very, very expensive very, very quickly if something's going to go all the way to litigation. And all of that comes out of my pocket directly. If I lose that case, I don't get any of that money back. So not only do I have the dozens of hours that I've spent on the case and my associate and, and paralegals have spent on the case, I have to pay their salaries whether I win or lose. But not only do I have to pay their salaries, I am also out a couple thousand dollars for the expenses that I had to pay in the case. I don't get that back. If we win, then I get paid those by the defendant. But even if we win, the court simply orders the defendant to pay those. Sometimes we win and the defendant can't play, pay because they're going to declare bankruptcy or collection is, you know, they, they don't have any money. You can't squeeze blood out of a rock. So even when you win, doesn't mean you always get paid. So as a plaintiff's attorney, if every time I did win, the only thing I got was my standard hourly rate, there would be no incentive whatsoever to be a plaintiff's attorney. Why on earth would you want to? You could go be a defense attorney. Because a defense attorney, you get paid your standard hourly rate whether you win or lose. You win, you get your $250, $300 an hour, whatever it is, you lose. You get the same thing, $250, $300 an hour. And you don't have any expenses. All the expenses are paid by your client. Your client wants to take a deposition. You say, sure, send me 1000 bucks per day as a cost plus my $2,000 a day for attorney's fees, and I'll be happy to take as many depositions as you want. So there wouldn't be any plaintiff's attorneys. Now, some of you employers out there are saying, well, great, that's fabulous. But for the people that I deal with, the people that send me questions, um, 
I wouldn't be there in order to help you with your questions. I wouldn't be here doing this uh, this radio show if the only thing I got out of a case was my standard hourly rate when I won. So you have to pay plaintiffs' attorneys a fairly significant premium because I think in the FedEx case, the uh, the direct out-of-pocket expenses were, were in several hundred thousand dollars, if, if I'm not mistaken. So that means if that attorney had not prevailed against FedEx, his law firm would have been out several hundred thousand dollars in direct cost, not to mention all the salaries that he paid to his uh, associates and other things in that case that probably, uh, just estimating off the top of my head, were probably upwards of, of a million dollars or so in, in salaries and things like that. A case like that is very, uh, is very complex to litigate. So on its face, yes, the attorneys are bad, they're evil, they're trying to take all this money, but that is not the case. When you really step back and look at, you know, if you want attorneys out there who are going to be willing to represent plaintiffs to help people out in lawsuits like this, then you have to pay them a premium. Well, you're saying, well, we can all just go to the labor board. Well, for those of you who have been to the labor board, you know it's not always the most pleasant experience. I think I've mentioned I probably get one to two emails a week with somebody irate at how they were treated at the labor board, that the labor board didn't tell them about certain claims that they had, that the labor board took so long. I just received, a, one of my associates had received an email a, a couple uh, uh, last week, I think, or a week or two ago, where the labor board had taken 26 months after the hearing in order to publish the opinion, that is, give them their award. They won. They won the case. But it was uh, 26 months later, which is a bit excessive. Even when you go to court on trial, uh, generally the, uh, you know, the, the Court uh, Workload Reduction Act requires that they clear the thing out within a year. So most of your cases are going to be tried within a year or thereabouts, or you're going to settle them beforehand. Very, very, very thing, few things go to trial. So of the cases that we have, you know, maybe one or two out of a hundred go to trial. The rest of them settle uh, well before that. So in dealing with uh, with state court, it usually goes uh, fairly quickly. Federal court kind of depends on which uh, which branch you go to. We've had some some good luck in federal court. Uh, other ones seem to uh, to take uh, a bit longer depending on the caseload. So it depends on what you have. But uh, class action lawsuits, um, you know, can be a uh, can be abused by some plaintiff's attorneys, and you, you just have to be careful about whether the attorney that uh, that you are dealing with is is one of those. So the next thing I want to talk about in terms of class actions is when you should bring one. Almost inevitably, when I speak to somebody on the phone, usually they're they're calling me up about wrongful termination or something like that. For those that call me up about wage and hour and unpaid overtime issues. A good portion of the time, the conversation starts out as, I want to bring a class action against my company for XYZ violations. That's great. I would love to help you with a class action. As I said, attorneys make a lot of money off of class actions, but it's not always the best thing for you as the plaintiff. Very, very frequently, the company will not want to do a class action, and they will be willing to pay you everything that you're entitled to so that you can avoid, so that they can avoid that class action litigation. The best way to defeat a class action is to simply pay the plaintiff off. 
say, you have all these claims, you weren't paid overtime, you weren't paid meal breaks, you didn't have proper pay stubs, you didn't receive your wages on termination, you received out-of-state paychecks, you know, whatever all the claims you're bringing, that's fine, we're going to pay you all the cash right now today. And we've had that happen. We had uh, uh, had one case where we sent out the demand letter, not even filing a lawsuit, and said, we know you have all these employees that you're not paying properly, and we're going to sue you in a class action. Um, and our plaintiff, the guy we represent, you owe him X, Y, and Z amount of money. And they simply wrote the guy a check and said, no, we don't. Why not? Because we just paid him. Everything he's due. Well, we sued him anyway, but we sued him under the Private Attorney General Act, and I'll take that up on the other side because that's what we use when the defendant tries to do this. Um, but it does, you know, with a class action, you always want to make sure when you pick your attorney, and you have, you know, especially when you've got a good class action case, any attorney on the planet will take your case. Class actions are very profitable. The right class action is very profitable. Some attorneys take big class actions, they lose them, and it puts them out of business. And that's what we had just talked about. But uh, if you've got a good class action, it's going to be very profitable. You won't have trouble finding an attorney who's willing to take your case. But what you need to do when you're selecting your attorney is find one that will represent your best interest, not the best interest of driving up the, the litigation cost and getting him as much money as possible. Because very, very frequently the company will realize that they have a potential class action lawsuit and they will want to pay you everything that you could possibly be paid in order to get you out of their face. And that can be a fairly substantial amount of money. We've had a couple big cases against uh, you know, larger companies where we have settled the case essentially for everything we could dream of possibly winning if we represented these people individually in their lawsuits and obviously, at that point, there's no reason to go with the class action. These guys are getting paid everything that they could possibly do. They have no interest in charging ahead with a class action lawsuit and vindicating the rights of hundreds of other employees. That's those other hundred employees. They've got my web address. They've, they can listen to this radio show if they want. They have all the same rights. If they want to have them vindicated, they can step forward and, uh, and vindicate their rights. Uh, so it's not that the employees are selling out or anything like that. It's that they had the courage and the foresight to research the law and understand what uh, their legal rights were, they came to me with their issues, and I do what attorneys do, and that is get my clients the maximum amount of money that I can for those clients. Now, sometimes the defendant isn't interested in that, and that's usually when we go ahead with class action litigation because we have no choice. There's no reason to just litigate you know, one person. The defendants, you know, especially these large companies, aren't going to take you seriously. You can, at that point, litigate as a class action. So when my firm files a class action, usually it's because we, I mean, it's always because we haven't been able to reach a legitimate resolution on the, uh, on the individual claims. Other attorneys don't. They, they don't even talk to uh, the defendant about these claims. They kind of build up their whole case and then just file a class action. Uh, if, if your goal is simply to, you know, vindicate the rights of, of hundreds of employees and make the company pay for all of them, then that's fine. Just I'll be happy to take your case uh, for that as well. But if your goal is to optimize the amount of money that you receive, then uh, you should find an attorney that's going, to, uh, that's going to do that for you and make sure that he's not going to charge ahead with a class action and sort of uh, ignore your wishes to get a relatively quick settlement on the thing because class actions are going to take a lot of time. So in any case, that's uh, you know that's what we've got for uh, for this section on class actions. I'm going to talk about private attorney general on the other side of the break, and that's a very different spin on things and a very useful tool. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll be right back with the uh, discussion. Bye.